This month, we have the legendary Steve Kern with us. He is on live, and we are here to talk to him about his career, things that he might would have wanted to change in his career, things he could have done differently, and we want to discuss his brand new autobiography that is out. The Fifth Life of Steve Kern. Steve, thank you so much for coming and hanging out with us tonight. Well, thank you guys for having me. As some of you guys, if you're if you're watching us live or watching the video, you can see Timmy C is not here today. We have uh, an upgrade in place. Justin is here taking taking Timmy C's role in the show as Timmy is on spring break with his kids in yes. the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't have it any other way. I've uh, <laughs> known this man for 37 years. I knew him as uh, the father of my friend Heidi. And uh, I've been able to watch his career as not only a fan uh, of his wrestling, but a fan of him as a father to uh, an incredible young lady and uh, a young man in Corey. So uh, I am just excited to be here and talk about his wrestling. Uh, I am excited to read his book. Uh, This is a lot of wrestling stories I did not get to hear about or see because I wasn't uh, at age uh, to to get to know it. But uh, I'm excited to kind of hear a little bit more about uh, this book writing. And uh, Dave, I'll pass it to you for your first question. All right, Steve, we'll we'll kick it off. We're going to kick it off with a question you probably had 4,000 times in your life. When you what were Skinner, is, what is your name? No, I'm yeah. <laughs> when you were Skinner in the WWF, yes, sir. What were you, what were you chewing on that was your chaw spit <laughs> that you would spit on your opponents? <laughs> you know, a lot of people thought I was chewing tobacco because it, it looked just like it, but it was my idea. I mean, back then was really a kind of a transition in wrestling from wrestlers the characters and it was based on action figures and toys and merchandise and dolls and you know just a plain looking wrestler could just you know kind of get boring and so when it when the whole thing went down the first time I went out I didn't have the chewing tobacco and I wrestled up and I think it was um I'm trying to think of the name it sounds like um like a A1 place, Worcester, Worcester, Massachusetts, Worcester or something. Worcester. That's Worcester. it. Yeah, there that's you go. it. I thought it sounded like some kind of steak sauce. <laughs> when I first went out there, I couldn't buy a boo. 
I mean, you know, that part of the country, I hadn't been up in there in a while, but they're heel fans. I'm stuck from Detroit, Philadelphia, New York, uh, Boston, any of that area. The heels are the baby face, and the baby faces are the heels. First of all, pull me aside after my match, and he said, hey, Steve. <laughs> I go, yeah. He goes, so what was that? And I go, what do you mean? And he goes, what, what, what did you just do out there? And I, I kind of felt funny. You know, I was like a 15-year veteran there, maybe more. And I said, I just, showed, I just gave you a wrestling match, and I beat that guy. And he goes, yeah, but you're supposed to be out of the Everglades. You're supposed to be alligator poacher. You out-wrestled a guy like Bret Hart. He said you made more moves than Bret Hart. But as a matter of fact, you can't know all those moves. I said, "Yeah, well, I couldn't get, I couldn't buy a boot. I got a little excited." And then when I started thinking about the character after that, I thought about <clears throat> the character I was depicted from was from the movie Deliverance, and I started looking at the character profiles, and I started realizing now what would get heat with me so far as being somebody watching. And I started thinking about chewing tobacco. Not only did I think about chewing tobacco, it was letting it run out of my mouth or into my beard or just gross or whatever you could call it, you know? So I'm not man enough to chew tobacco. I mean, you know, so my alternative, I came up black licorice. I would chew, I would chew a half a bar of black just before they'd call me and get it going. And then when the my, my ring music was the sounds of the Everglades, it sounded like bugs and insects going. And when they say, okay, the bugs are playing, <laughs> I'd just roll around. I'd roll around on the dressing room floor, get up, take a bottle of water, take a big swig and put the other half of the licorice in my mouth and go out there. And so I knew it'd be kind of juicy and running out of my mouth. And I carried a little bean can at first and would spit in it, but it kept getting lost. They wouldn't bring it back sometimes, you know, my stuff. And anyway, the the stuff was, that I was chewing was actually a licorice. So, but it that added is... heat. It added heat because I got to spit on a bunch of people on the way to the ring. And I finally got some booze, but I think it was more I was spitting on them than it was because they were, <laughs> they didn't like the heels. <laughs> I always laugh because I'm I'm from the South. Growing up, my great grandmother chewed tobacco. And she chewed, it looked like an old brownie. And she would sit in her rocking chair and she'd bite that thing. And her spitter would be sitting across the room and she'd just rock forward and boom, right in that spitter and just keep rocking. And it, it looked so funny because I always thought that when she spit, it looked like chocolate syrup. Nah. So well, it's it was, pretty nasty. I mean, you know, it's like when I was a baby face, when I first started your baby face, you, you couldn't say anything that didn't insult people. So your interviews really sucked. I mean, you know, you could, you couldn't mention your opponent being old, fat, nothing. I mean, you know, because you'd <laughs> insult half the audience. Well, in doing so with the, with the chewing tobacco and everything, I knew if, if I could spit on enough people that I'd get them worked up. And plus, being a heel was so much fun to me 
And, you know, and I was a character. All of a sudden, I'm not Steve Kern. I'm not responsible for this guy. This is Skinner. And now I'm I'm one of the guys in the woods with Ned Beatty going, hey, boy, you've got a right pretty mouth. And I went all the way. <laughs> it was a different time back then, too. And I think it, different culture. So I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, I understand where you're going. And, and the character allowed it, right? So you talk a lot about creating a, a character and switching from Steve Kern, right? Oh, um, yeah. And I think my mother didn't even my mother didn't even recognize me. I told my mother that I had switched territories and then characters and I was in the WWF and I said, I'll be on TV. And I told her what channel to watch, watch the whole show. I think it was just a regular Saturday night show or something from WWF back then. And she said, I watched the whole show. Didn't see. I said, you see the guy come out from underwater with a knife in his mouth. (laughs) And my mom's going, no. So she walked the next week and she kept watching, but she never put it together that Skinner was me because she had never really seen me with a bit longer beard than a fabulous one. So anyway, but it was a fun, you know, the character didn't go very far, but politically I was pretty much, at, at that point in my career, I had made some big mistakes by ribbing some of the wrong people and, you know, <clears throat> doing some things with some people that I probably shouldn't have done that caused heat for me. And in the wrestling business, if you get heat someplace, it can bury you for a long group of people. So, but it didn't matter. I had fun. I was, I had a lot of my friends there and made it a lot of money. So I, uh, speaking of, uh, getting heat. I uh, I read your book, and so I I like the chapter where you talked about uh, buying. I think it was two point five percent of uh, championship uh, wrestling from Florida from uh, borrowing fifty thousand dollars from your father in law, and then it kind of led to some mysterious cash uh, flow coming in, and where you questioned it, right? And I think you've always been a, a good of uh, a good moral guy, and I, I think none not too many people would question, uh, you know, where money's coming in. They would just, you know, like the fact that money's coming in. Uh, so I thought that was pretty interesting, but uh, the next chapter where you found out that Eddie was kind of pushing you out of, uh, championship wrestling from Florida and giving you back to, to Vince senior. And I thought that was pretty cool that you, you got a title and got over to uh, new Japan. Do you want to talk a, a little bit about that? Um, I think it's chapter 11 that's in your book. Well, you know, Justin, when you when you talk about those stories, I mean, you know, there's always a couple of sides to stories and given fairness where it's at. Of course, Eddie's not here to defend himself. Dusty was a part of it. and Vince Sr. was a part of it. But the story, you know, was kind of unique about the way it happened. And and it made Eddie Eddie went back and forth. Eddie was pretty much a, not a father figure, but somebody I looked up to a lot. And, you know, I idolized him so far as when I was a kid, when I was like 13 years old, I lost my dad to Vietnam and we was shot down and became a prisoner of war. And so I was really grasping, you know, for some kind of father figure. And I, I got to meet Mike at Robinson High School. And when I did, that brought us together. And he started, I started hanging out with him and he took me to his house and I met Eddie and told him my dad was a POW and everything. And it was automatic patriotism and, you know, sympathy for me. 
And so he gave me things. He gave me jobs. He gave me opportunities to do things. He gave me um, what to make money for the company, the wrestling business and everything. So I was introduced to it early. And also, you know, whenever business transaction happened during my career and, and the things I write about, the bottom line is it's just Steve's side of the story. You know what I mean? So it's like anything that I say tonight on your show when it comes to wrestling or anything. This is the simple part of it. After 44 years in this industry, wrestling is simple. It's an opinion. It's your opinion, David's opinion, TJ's opinion, anybody watching. It's their opinion, what they like, you know, what they think it should be, who they think should be doing what. And, and that's based on experiences. That's based on, you know, what they've witnessed, what they've grown up watching or what they've, you know, found, you know, that really grabbed them. And so with me and Eddie and, and, and Mike and the, the, the thing about the business and the buying a percentage and the, the money and all of that, when you're young, you know, you don't really think and most people would take money. But I have always had a fear of going to jail. I don't want to be somebody's roommate in jail. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, I might think I'm tough, but I might be in there somebody tougher and be somebody's wife. And that doesn't go, that's not going to work for me. So, you know, whatever experience I had with them, I never had any remorse. I just state facts and stuff. And, you know, um, my opinions of what happened, were, you know, manipulation, young guy, access to money. And then when it came right down to it, I was questioning cash because, you know, cash in a paper bag is mysterious enough to me. I mean, you know, but to get in on certain nights all the time, you know, it's telling me something's happening. And, you know, all it did was give me a deeper education into the business I was in. And by the time I'd been in it a long time, I got I got the whole thing. I mean, I know exactly what went on in all the territories because I worked 50 percent of them and I know exactly what it went on in promotion. And that's why I focus personally not on being the main event in wrestling, not on being the most remembered or popular or whatever wrestler, but being the owner. <laughs> I want to be the owner. I want to be that guy because that's the guy that makes the money. And that's the guy that calls the shots, you know, titles and all of that stuff. They're realistically, they're handed to you by somebody telling you, you're going to get it. If you guys came to my house, you wouldn't find anything in my house. that has got wrestling has anything to do with wrestling. It's not because I didn't love what I did. It's because that, you know, I, I just understand that it's a work. It's a business, you know? And so it, my ego is, doesn't blow up with something that I did in my past, for sure. That's, think what, that's what wrestling needs more of. Too What's many that? guys are worried. That's what wrestling needs more of, though. Too many guys are worried about being on top or looking bad or something. And we, we've had this discussion on our other podcast, and, and I always went back to Scott Hall. Pin me, pay me. I don't care. As long as I get a paycheck, good to go. Yeah. And, yeah, and that's what that's what wrestle needs more of. Now Scott had a tendency to be a whiner for a while there when he when he went from Razor Ramon went to WCW. Those guys stirred it up down there. I don't really know. 
I knew Scott pretty well. I mean, you know, I knew him back. You know, he stole my gimmick one time and went from, um, we had PWF here for a short time. Myself, Dusty, Gordon Soley, and Mike Graham owned it. And when we were running it, Scott came in and we we had him. And then when he left, he went to Georgia to go to work and he went to Scott Gator Hall. And he called, <laughs> and he called me and he says, listen, Steve, man, I know you'd be up that, but I, I took your, your gimmick Gator thing. I'm going, really? Who cares? <laughs> really? Who cares? I hope you make it pop and I'll steal it back from you. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's you guys understand. You guys are intelligent enough to understand. Some guys will try to blow smoke up your butts and tell you things because of their egos or to embellish stories. And I call it like it's, I mean, it's a business. It's you work for somebody mm-hmm. and you're told what to do. You may I may as well have been in the military my whole life. I mean, they told me how long to march and what I needed to do at the end of the march. And then go home, you know, as simple as that. So I, I had some questions lined up for you, but I, I, I was informed one I needed to ask you. Okay. By someone in this room, his name might rhyme with Mustin. Okay. So um, I'll save my, my original question for a second. So I'm supposed to ask you about the Rock and Roll Express almost sending you to jail. Sending me to jail? Yes. I don't know. So in the book, you said that uh, I think it was Ricky Morton had uh, right. had No, 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 uh, no, no. See, Justin, where did you graduate from, anyway? I read that chapter quick. I'm sorry. Yeah, you, <laughs> you sure did. Because <laughs> Ricky Morton, he wasn't. I don't even know if he was out of elementary school when I when that happened. It was. Um, it was Ricky Gibson. Gibson, sorry, that's right. Yeah, it was Ricky Morton's partner, Robert Gibson's older brother. Yes, oh, that's what it was. Used, yes, we used we used to pick up Robert Gibson from high school when I was working at Sacola Territory with Ricky Gibson as my partner. So that's how far I go back with him. But what happened was Ricky Gibson. Um, I just bought a brand new car in Georgia. And at that time it was on a Saturday, which is three shots on Saturday. You did an Atlanta TV taping. Then you got in the car and you drove to Columbus, Georgia, and you did an afternoon show, live show in Columbus, Georgia. And then you got from that show, you went right straight to either Griffin or Carrollton, Georgia. And we were on our way to Griffin, Georgia. And it was me and Jerry Briscoe and Ricky Gibson. And I just brought this brand new Chrysler Cordoba. Mm-hmm. Chrysler before, never owned one after that. But Ricardo Montalban <laughs> did a commercial on TV. And I'm not sure what condition I was in when I was watching it, but I freaked out and fell in love with this Chrysler Cordoba made with Corinthian leather. <laughs> it was beautiful, black on black. <laughs> Excuse me. Anyway, I bought this car, and on the way to, in between, um, after this TV, the second TV in Georgia and um, Columbus, we're on our way to, and it was dark, and Ricky Gibson says, hey, man, let me drive this car. It's my new car. He goes, let me drive your car. Let me drive your car. 
And I was obligated to let him drive my car because he had one of them big ass Thunderbirds. And I'd run off the road trying to dodge a deer the week before. And when he woke up, I was on the side of the road hitting a deer right in the ass and killed the deer. But he was swearing that I ran off the road to hit the deer. So when he asked me to drive my car, I was kind of saying, you know, I didn't want to say no because he was going to go. So, well, you ran mine last week. But, I, you know, so I said, yeah, yeah. So when he, when I let him drive the car, he's hauling ass. <laughs> I mean, and it's two lane roads. But, and really, you know, not where you should be doing 80, 90 miles an hour. And we got pulled over. Well, when we got pulled over, it was a local cop from Griffin, Georgia. Uh, yeah, Griffin, Georgia. Anyway, Ricky turns to me and says, I don't have a driver's license. Give me a driver's license. What? <laughs> Here's the thing. Back then, you guys are way too young to remember this, and you wouldn't have been able to drive anyway. But at one time, the Florida driver's license was a piece of paper. It didn't have a photo on it. It wasn't it just It folded, but it was just like a red square with your information on it. And he was pretty close to my identity. I mean, you know, he had brown hair, brown eyes, maybe 200 pounds, blah, 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 whatever it said on it. So I'm going, oh, man, my driver's license. So I go, here you go. I'm going to get a speeding ticket now, right? So I give it to him. The the, drive, the cop said, pulls him over, makes him get out of the car. And then the cop says, um, what's that I smell? And Ricky's going, what are you talking about? And he says, well, I think you guys need to follow me into Griffin. I'm gonna, I need to search your car. So, you know, we don't know what's going on we get you know this is a right after a live event and we get pulled up we take in there and when we get in there the guy books ricky and fingerprints him and throws him in jail as steve kern now he's in jail and i'm looking at this like man i'm sweating bullets and then the guy goes out and wants to search the car me and jerry briscoe go out there and watch him search the car and he looked all over the car and he couldn't find nothing and he goes in the trunk and it had a cover over the spare tire, just really nice. It was a brand new car. <laughs> and he pulls that off and he sticks his hand up there and he comes out with the marijuana joint in a plastic tube. And he says, um, whose is this? And I'm looking at Ricky Gibson. I mean, uh, Jerry Briscoe, Ricky's in jail. <laughs> That's not mine. And he's going, well, it's in your trunk. And anyway, so all of the heat goes on me. We go in there. They arrested him, charged him with possession of marijuana, fined him $1,500, and turned him loose. But I ended up with all, all the charges. And a year later, I'm back in Florida, and a Florida highway patrolman knocks on my front door. And I go to the door, and he says, surrender your driver's license. And I'm going, what? And he's going, you got to surrender your driver's license. Your driver's license has been revoked in Georgia for a, a failing to show up in a court thing about a misdemeanor or whatever, possession of marijuana. And I'm going, I've never been arrested. So I'll finish the story because I had a friend in Fort Lauderdale who told him the whole story. And what he did is he took a picture of me, fingerprinted me, took a whole mugshot deal, sent it to Griffin, Georgia, and said, identify this guy. 
And they sent back saying something they couldn't identify him. Said, well, you need to drop this issue between that and Steve Kern because that you have false identification here. And they proved it wasn't me anyway. Everything got dropped. But all over me liking a Chrysler Cordoba and Ricky Gibson getting pulled over driving it. So <laughs> my life is my life has been a roller coaster for years in this insane asylum of a wrestling business. It's almost impossible. I'm you could have like, done something with that gimmick though. You could have been the first ever nails. We yeah, got a convict, yeah. Steve Kern. <laughs> no, 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 no. You missed the part about I didn't want to have anything to do with jail. I mean, I always, I always paid my taxes and did everything, and I made friends with the cops. I'm friends in every coliseum, arena, every every venue that I was ever in. I used to go in the back and just start talking to the cops because they always had great stories about the things going on in those cities. But I used to put a few guys, you know, as friends, you know, and had, had some of my friends arrested. That was one of my best ribs, having you arrested. You know? So I had a lot of guys arrested. And when a cop's arrested you, it's pretty hard to argue with them, you know what I mean? Or think, oh, this is a joke, right? Because they'll go all the way. They're good at, at that. So... Anyway, let me take time. You, you just mentioned chronicling 47 years in the business. And a question I have is what convinced you that now was the right time to write a book? I mean, obviously, you've been writing it for a while. But what what convinced you now was the time? Well, it was 44 years. And the reason I wrote it now was because I have friends that have written books and they've been trying to get me to write one and trying to me. And here's what my thought process was. When you're out of sight, you're out of mind mm -hmm. and time keeps on going. In other words, you go through hot spells when you, you're, you're on fire and everybody wants to know something about you or wants to be a part of you or, or wants to utilize you, whether it's promotion or drawing people there or whatever. And then when you're not doing anything and you're idle, people forget. And wrestling fans are different. Wrestling fans are into nostalgia and they're into retro. And I've been bombarded trying to just walk away from the wrestling business more than I was when I was in the wrestling business for people, you know, want me to sign something in magazines for but trading cards, action figure, whatever it is. And then so I'm not interested in it. And when like everybody can book, man, been the business longer than most guys ever get in the business. And you've done everything. You didn't just wrestle. You know, you've owned it. You've booked it. You've been an agent. You've been a, the owner of the developmental. So you've got a lot of stories. You should tell and I said, well, you know, here's the thing. If you take a book and say, not too many people are going to give me too much credibility or the ones that do are going to be somebody that's either really a student of it or lived in, in that era. But if you put it up with all the other books that are out there, you know, there's a lot more people that they're interested in reading about. So I, was, I wasn't worried because it's 
this book isn't for my not depending on making any money off of this book. If I do, um, that's great. Of course, I'd love to, but I wrote it to hand down to my grandchildren. Mm. How does my daughter, like Justin said, Heidi or Corey, my son, worries about me if there's not written down? Heidi read the book and she's freaking out. She goes, Dad, I didn't know you did that. Dad, I didn't know you got caught stealing hubcaps at the mall in West Shore. <laughs> you know, Dad, I didn't know you failed for 15. I mean, you know, so my daughter's getting educated. And I wanted to leave it in the way it should be presented, humble and with no ego. Just not trying to embellish my history or whatever. Just tell the stuff. After this book, it gets really intense. And the reason it does is because it now I'm at the end kind of, of my career runs. And I'm getting into that age group where you're kind of like you're past the guy that they really want to utilize because they're worried about you making it through. And then, you know, it's kind of harder to find a job and it gets political. One of the things I vowed to when I was a young guy and started in Tampa was when I wrestled at the very beginning of my career, I wrestled guys old enough to be my grandpa. And I said, man, how come you're still wrestling? And they'd say, well, you know, bad investments. But anyway, none of them are good stories. And I said to myself, you know, one thing I'm not going to do, I'm not going to be an old wrestler. I mean, no matter matter where I'm at in my life, I'm going to pick a time where I'm just going to say I'm not not getting it. And ring it anymore. And here's my input for you all is that I didn't want to embarrass myself by taking my clothes off and having a bad performer to the to the top of my game. And I didn't want to embarrass my kids. I don't want to my kids are going through school. You know, their dad's skinner. What the hell? Well, Macho Man and I did Corey's third grade class, Bring Your Dad to School Day. Wow. And and me and Randy, Randy was, Randy was such a, he loved my family so much. And we're such close friends. Randy goes, brother, you're going to do Corey's class. I got to be there. And he got, man, he got that. We saw that class Skinner Macho Man in full dress and talked about why he didn't want to grow up to be a wrestler. And I'm saying, can you imagine? He's the good guy. Look how ugly this guy is, you know? And <laughs> and Randy was really intense enough, but but you know, it was just hard enough. So I didn't want to be an old wrestler. I didn't want to be somebody broke down and just getting by. And, you know, um, it was just it was just choices you have to make. Anyway, so the, the time to write the book is now because it, I'm still sane. That's another thing. <laughs> a, lot of my, a lot of my friends are not. 
I mean, crazy already. They've, they've got diseased brains or they've had too many licks on the head. When I get together and I eat lunch with a lot of my friends, some guys living in Tampa and around here, that we go together and sit down and eat lunch. But a lot of them will ask me the same damn question three or four times, you know, and I'm looking at them and I'm going, I'll come home to my wife, Terry, and I'll say, listen, if you ever see me doing something, I don't know if you know when you go crazy or not. So I wanted to get it out of the way before I, you know, slip into darkness or wherever you go. Do you participate in the golf club in Tampa? Do you mean the Legends Lunch thing? Yeah, the Legends Luncheon, yeah. Yeah, he's one of my best friends. And he wants me to go all the time. But here's one because it, I'm really straightforward. I, you know, I got two bosses, God and Terry, my wife, bottom line. So I don't have to answer to anybody, but I'm really straightforward and honest. But when I go to the, when I go to the legends lunch, a lot of times there's a lot of fans there and everything that I don't know the difference between fans and old guys that I've wrestled before on smaller independent groups. And they're coming up to me, talking to me, Hey brother, Hey, I haven't seen you a long time, you know, and hugging me. I'm going in there and everybody wants to hug me and I don't even recognize them and I don't even know them and I started getting kind of freaked out. When I eat lunch with my friends, I want to eat lunch with my friends. I don't want to talk about, you know, wrestling matches and things like that. I want to talk about how's your family injuries, you know, how's your knee? How many is God? I got to have 10 knees put in, you know, I've lost both hips. I mean, you know, we talk like all guys, but at the same time, it's a camaraderie that only people in stand is you've given your hand, you've given your body to this guy's hands time things to you and not kill you or cripple you. And for that, the, gratitude and the respect love is phenomenal and so when we sit down i mean you know a lot of times i did to pull a joke on one of them or whatever and i kind of end up the butt end of the day but you know it, it, it's just true crime i cauliflower alley in vegas one brian kind of tricked me he wanted me to induct a friend of mine who had been a referee. His name was Mickey J. He just passed last year. Mm-hmm. And he was a really close friend of mine. He wanted me to induct him to the, for the Cauliflower Alley Club. And when I got out there, Brian inducted me as a trainer of the year or something out of me I'm a speaker in front of wrestlers <laughs> i mean you know i call i had so many i have so many funny stories about them and when i see them in a the crowd i go yeah hey you remember when you did this and there you are sitting right there and i mean you know it's, it's just very entertaining but i'm just i don't go to the legends lunch and even the boy hey man how come you didn't come watch me get inducted I, I'll, I'll get somebody to send me a picture of it, okay? 
So I ask, I ask that because we kind of have a show favorite. We did an old WCW pay-per-view one day and it had Bob Cook on it. <laughs> I love so, Bob Cook. And so, and, and none of us knew Bob at the time. So I started to do some research and then I, I reached out to Bob Cook and we started talking on Facebook and I've become like right. friends on Facebook and he's always promoting that legends luncheon and all that. And he had, he was at, at pretty much all the, the last ones that have been there. I know he's a kid as well. So, right. Yeah. He goes, I mean, he loves it. He does help him promote and everything, but you know, it's, I don't know how to explain it really. I mean, there's a lot of things that I miss that go to, cause I don't have a lot of interest. I mean, you know, when SmackDown or Raw comes here, I don't go to the down there to go into the back to talk to the talent, unless one of them calls me ahead of time mm-hmm. and wants me. Drew McIntyre and the Usos and a couple of other guys that went through FCW under me have asked me to come watch them and Cesaro and some of those guys that were there and I'm not trying to drop names I'm just those are just kind of like I was there, not their mentor I was a coach and kind of a guy that taught them some things from experiences that I had you know you can't but I can't say, yeah, I taught Roman Reigns, you know, I taught him everything he knows. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. You get taught in well, when it was FCW, you got taught in there by myself, Tom Pritt, Norman Smiley. I mean, you know, there was a montage dusty teaching your promos. Mm-hmm. But you had by veterans that watched you and gave you input to you know i'll give you an example jack swagger right i loved him i mm-hmm. loved him man if he wasn't jack briscoe reborn again i don't know who was and jake hager well see he was so the anyway, fcw champion for a long time when justin and i was, first started I watching gonna, i'm gonna beat him yeah. i wasn't gonna beat him one of the things i had him doing is going out Saying, well, I'm 88 no or 89 and no. I just pick a number every night and tell him what to say. <laughs> but I didn't want to beat him. And the reason I did is anytime I was questioned by the media or anything about wrestling, I'd, I could say, okay, so I want you to come down and meet my heavyweight champion. And then I want you to question him. Then I want you, if you want to wrestle him, you're more than welcome to wrestle him. But I knew how to an impression to me an impression of wrestling not somebody in tennis shoes not somebody that can do aerial moves is somebody that looks like a man that's going to kick your ass that's the impression when I started in 1972 guys look like men Eddie Graham told me from the time 20 to 30, Steve, you're not going to draw any serious money from this to be like a man that's had his ass kicked and kicked and kicked and kept getting up. Because when you walk through the audience, every guy in that audience sizes you up. And when you can turn and look at everybody in the eye, and that guy anything, 
that's a man. And so that was kind of what it was built on. Don't get me wrong. I don't argue with but at the same time. It doesn't have the same flavor as it did when I was there mm-hmm. and when I was a young guy. And and the bodies, they weren't all the guys that wrestled back then were just big barrel chested, big barrel bellied. I mean, you know, big legs, but either hairy or, you know, freaking or whatever. But, you know, when you said Ox Baker, could you imagine having to wrestle him when you're young? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. he was horrible. I hope nobody's his relative there, but he was horrible. <laughs> He was so slow. He moved so slow and he talked so loud that you could hear him trying to call high spots in the third or fourth row. I mean, the referee <laughs> was the referee was constantly. <laughs> he goes, OK, kid, fight back. <laughs> well, well, now that everybody in the whole building knows that, I guess I better fight back what was the name of the bar in newport richie where you guys started putting on shows oh man what was because that's when i first went i feel, like, bar. I feel like i'm playing family feud man i don't know uh, I, don't dip on my I know the first show ever was at dallas yeah yeah but we but got that's in tampa up, we got hooked at this bar because they wanted it every week yeah and so i started going I had I started writing for a, a website called Coco Sports, and right. they wanted somebody to do that. So I went up there and I got like a media pass to go in, so I didn't have to pay to go in. And I would sit at the bar, drink beer, and one of the greatest nights of my life was at this bar in nowhere, Newport Richie. I go into the bathroom. And I'm standing at the urinal, and there's, I mean, these are these are real men's urinals. There's not anything in between them, any partitions or anything. Standing at the urinal, and I'm just standing at the urinal, and this guy was wrestling. And I'm not paying attention, you know, I'm doing eyes forward, sitting at the urinal. And I, I just kind of see this guy stand next to me, and I look at him, and he looks at me, and I go, you're, you're Dusty Rhodes. And he goes, the American dream, baby. And you're taking a piss right next to it. <laughs> uh, One of the greatest he, nights ever. I'm I'm surprised he was that friendly with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you did because it, he was like my big brother. I I, I spent 50 years with Dusty as a friend and, you know, in all kinds of situations. And he was a moody guy. I mean, you know, if you hit him the wrong way, he didn't, he wasn't real entertaining, you know? So, but you must've got him in a funny spot because it, I mean, being in the bathroom and have to stay and stand there and piss one thing, but you know, somebody freaking out over you. <clears throat> we always well, laugh. I guess it. And I've even the wrestling business, I'm not a big botherer. Right. If I see somebody out in public, I'm not really going to bother you. I think the only the only autograph I've ever gotten out in public was Macho Man. Right. 
But other than that, I've I've always just been kind of like starstruck. But I always knew, knew that if I was if I was trying to do something out and about in public, and people kept coming up to me, so I uh-huh. I refused to ever. <clears throat> well, see, that's one of the <laughs> the blessings of not being a big super. When come up to me, it's a miracle they recognize me first of all. Then the second thing is, is they always you know. Very seldom does somebody come up, and here's the one big mistake: because when somebody comes up to you and you're you're in your prime or whatever, and they go, "Hey, I know you. You're one of them phony ass wrestlers." Well, that was nice. But I mean, just insulted you to death. I mean, you know. But so it depends on the approach. I mean, you know, that's one of the reasons I don't hang out with like Hulkster and some of my friends that I grew up with since Robinson. I mean, you know, to be around Hulkster in public, you may as well be standing with frickin' Elvis. I mean, everybody comes up and you can be standing up. Everybody will push you away and, you know, start pushing you. Well, I'm not, I'm not cool pushing me out of the way. I mean, yeah. you know, excuse me or whatever. But even if I'm 71, I'm still, I still get a little insulted. You know, I'm, I have to turn around constantly in Walmart. Because I ran by a cart and I go, you must not know who the hell I used to be. Because <laughs> <laughs> there was a time when I wasn't friendly. But, you know, you got punches, but, you know, there's that that bar, I, you know, it's like on the tip of my tongue. We had to go there all the time. When when talent relations came down from WWE and went one night and saw where I was running in that bar, and that was they, it. they they freaked out. Well, they then you moved to out. you moved to the warehouse on Del Mabry. Well, no, that was where the school was. The bar was a live event. No, the bar, was, but then but then you started running FCW from the warehouse. And I really used to go to that show every week on Thursday yeah. nights for like eight bucks. Well, that was Heidi, because Heidi be there selling popcorn. Right. And yeah. And you had all the posters all over the wall and it was the same, same crowd. It was yeah, every week. Much. We all, cause we always had the same seat, just. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that's because that was a re-creation of my roots. That was Florida Championship Wrestling, but it was actually wrestling. I just right. I just reversed the initials, but that's the same as the Sportatorium was years and years ago, where we filmed TV and we ran a live event, and then the same as any venue. The first part, remember, we had to I had to build the whole school, and it took a warehouse and gutted it. And we built it, but you know, I had to go by all these city codes. I jumped through hoops. I never built it. I struggled with that for six months, having that place built. And then once it was built, I utilized it for a, a arena for live shows, but just to add another show. Here's the reason for information. The reason is because when you're learning to be a professional wrestler. You can be in a school all day long, 10 years, and never get it. You can go in front of live audience four times a week, 
and fail forward. In other words, go out there and see what you suck at and how you can improve it and how you can, you know, go forward. And you're going to, you're going to get live people giving you real response. When you're in a cold gym and your peers are watching you go through spots or maneuver, whatever, there's no reaction that you're getting from an audience. And the secret to the wrestling business is not how many moves you know, it's how to perform in front of an audience. You, know, you guys are smart enough to look at talent and look at some of the biggest name talents and how many moves they actually made. I mean, Hulk was for five to 10 moves, but he was one of the best, you know, icons of our industry and one of the biggest stars ever. So he need to know flying head scissor, I mean, nope. drop kick or anything like that. Hell no. I mean, you know, even Dusty, Dusty could do three or four moves and stop and shake his ass. And that was better than 10 drags for some guys. So I ran live events and I started off anywhere I could go. I went to flea market and flea people. I put them in front of armories. I put them in front of, you know, state fairs all over the state. I got to where I ran five shows, four to five shows a week. But what I tried to teach them, all audiences, and the better you get at that, a big audience is a piece of cake. I when think you, a small audience would be worse than a big audience. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. I can remember when I was young, I'd freak out. But when I got old, the small shows that they're on, and I'd do either Skinner or Doink or something just to get a payoff. And I'd look out in the audience, and there'd be like 20 people. And I'd go out there, and I'd say, hey, can you all get over here all on one side? I, mean, you know, <laughs> I wasn't afraid to talk. Over there and three on this side and ten down there. I want you to all to sit on the same side. But it is if you can get people, here's the deal. <clears throat> people don't like to be sex, but when they can react in an audience, and usually in a crowd, it's easier for than it is when it's singled out, because if they're too much on the spot, it's the same thing. Here's another big education from history. At one time, all the coliseums would turn off their lights. We were in Memphis doing the fabulous ones, me and Stan, and they'd turn off all, all the lights and put hit us with spotlights. We'd come through the audience. Then um, I think it was nine one one, or not, maybe one nine one one. Maybe it was something else, but it was a, a mass shooting or something. No. No turning the lights out in coliseums. Well, that's a whole new ball game because if the audience doesn't want to get up, stand up and be a spectacle when they feel like they can, you can, everybody's looking. And when the lights come on, the audience is turn the volume some pretty much for all of us for a long time until we got used to it and found another way to crank them back up. But, you know, a lot of changes have happened. Anyway, one of our Justin. friends yeah. of the show, Moose, uh, oh. we call him, his real bar was called Bourbon Street. Bourbon yes. Street, boom. There it is. Bourbon right. Street. Yeah. Awesome. Yep. That's exactly the place. 
Well, Steve, we want to record. We got five minutes before the hour is up. Do you have a couple minutes to answer some fan questions? And then thing is, obviously, your book is available on Amazon right now uh, for people to go buy. We would love to have you and be the first podcast uh, once your second book drops on yes. uh, Amazon. So reach me and let me know when that comes out. But we would love to have you back on. Uh, oh, I appreciate that. Give me, I got one second. I want to say one thing, too, because the guy that wrote for me, his name's Ian Douglas. He's written, um, I think, five other wrestlers books. Uh, yes. Yes, Bohemian, Bohemian Rhapsody. Well, that's Kevin and Dusty and Tyree Pride, and I don't know who the other dude is, but I did the forward on this book. The wrestling person that really enjoys wrestling, but I'm out of it. I mean, I'm advocate about the wrestling there because I spent a lot of time in there and it's an unusual place to wrestle. And he goes over the behind people know that it's even out there, but I wanted to plug that for them. My wife hates professional wrestling. Right. And she said the only way she'd go to another wrestling match is if we went on a vacation to like the Bahamas or somewhere and there was a wrestling match there. So look, look at this. We're, we're well, you, met, you mentioned somebody's in the Bahamas right now. And I wanted to say, man, I should have gave him that book right there to read when he went over there on vacation. <laughs> I mean, and here's the thing. If he read this in the Bahamas, the people in the Bahamas would really The reason is, is because that you're putting their history over, whether it was in wrestling or baseball or golf or whatever. And so it, it just breaks down a little bit of a barrier too but ian wrote that book and i just wanted to make sure i plugged that for him too i do it on every podcast i mean awesome. obviously obviously i'm going to talk about my book and everything but at the same time i'm i'm kind of like a green person you know how to sell it you know they told me says oh order a bunch of that go Sign them. That sounds great, but I don't, you know, I don't know how to take money from people and do all of those kind of things. And I've always felt a little strange about sales. I mean, you know, what I did for a living was easy for me. That's good versus evil. And the way I did it might not have been the best way, may not have been the way everybody else like the way I did, did it with believability. I reason I really believed in what I was doing. I mean, you know, and so did my opponents. I can't tell you how many mm -hmm. guys you'd ask me if I owed them money. I mean, you money. I mean, you know, because the two things were always real for me. A slap, if I slap, I slap the piss out of you because it is not gonna hurt long. And it needs to be real. And if I chopped you, I chopped you hard enough. The whole audience heard all the way to the cheap seats. Because it's going to sting, but it'll go away. Other than that, I do anything unusual, but I, I was considered stiff by my opponents and aggressive. 
And the reason it was, Graham taught me right here at Tampa. And the thing he taught me was take pride in what you do. People are going to make fun of what you do. But if you let that bother you, then you shouldn't be doing it. But if you stay there and perform the way you want them to see you, nobody should question, you know, your your integrity in the business. So I've been, you know, this is me now, my opinion again. So if you ask one of my, if you ask Honky Tonk Man right now, but <laughs> oh my God, was he stiff? <laughs> Thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> 